Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, our ophthalmology OCAPS and Board View podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young. Each week we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. This week we have with us a special co-host, Anvish Anadhanam, who's one of our residents at the Kellogg Eye Center. Anvish, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ben. This is a really big honor to have me on your podcast. No, no, it's, the honor is all mine. Anvish recently taught me a lot about the topic that we're going to talk about, and I thought he did too much preparation and did too good of a job to not share it with everyone else. We're recording on a Saturday when he is off call, so I hope everyone really appreciates his time coming in on a snowy weekend. So, Anvish, you introduced this concept to us in the form of a case. Let's keep it a little bit of a mystery and start with the case of the patient that you saw. And editor's note, we're going to change some of the details of the patient's history to keep things HIPAA compliant. Sure, let's get right into it. So a few weeks ago uh, with my attending, we saw this patient who was a 50-year-old woman who presented for a routine eye exam. She had a history of breast cancer. She took some medications, including exemestane for her breast cancer. And previously, she was on tamoxifen. Now, skipping directly to the exam, in the visual acuity-wise, she was, did pretty well, 20-20 in both eyes. Her intraocular pressures were normal. And going back into the fundus, we noticed that there were some mild pigment changes in the macula. We also got an OCT, as we do in the retina clinic. Ben, do you want to describe this OCT for us? Yeah, so, you know, and you showed this OCT to us before. And what I I thought was interesting is at first glance, you know, I mean, like I'm a retina fellow. And at first glance, I thought it looked totally normal. You know, looking at this thing, basically, I didn't see a bubble. So I thought, okay, no injection to do. And then I probably would have moved on if I didn't have the careful eye that you did, because I think something that is really interesting about this OCT that grossly, you know, if you just give it a quick glance, looks normal, is when you compare it to a previous OCT that we just happened to have from seven years before. And that one definitely looks normal, even on close inspection. But when we look at the one from the visit that you recently saw the patient at, you can see that, you know, most of the inner retinal architecture looks pretty intact. And even the ellipsozone, or as some people call it, the inner outer segment, that very outer bright band that's just above the RPE looks, you know, maybe a little bit changed, but nothing, you know, to write home about. But then the layers directly above that, the outer nuclear layer, that dark band that's above the, the inner outer segment junction, just look a little bit, um, a little bit attenuated compared to for OCT from seven years ago. They're just a little bit thinner. It's pretty subtle. But you noticed that, Amvesh, when you saw this patient. So can you describe those pigment changes just a little bit more for us when you looked at them fundoscopically? Like what pattern did they have? Yeah, that's a great, great description, Ben. So when we went back, looked at the OCT, we went back to the patient and said, hey, well, can we correlate what we're seeing on this OCT to the exam itself? So looking more closely at the fundus, we saw some, you know, these same pigment changes, but they looked like they were in a particular pattern, like a little ring around the fovea, but they didn't seem like they involved the fovea. Right. And that's what we, you know, listener, you can't see this OCT, but that's what I'm looking at too. The very center of the fovea and the foveola, that central depression looks normal. But then once you get beyond that, then we see this kind of outer nuclear, outer plexiform loss. So maybe now we'll pause for the listener and then think about essentially what we're telling you. We have a patient here for routine exam, 2020 vision, but with a subtle ring of outer nuclear and outer plexiform loss. 
So listener, what's the differential? What do you think might be happening? And then what do you want to ask the patient next? Or what do you possibly want to test next? Take a little pause. And Avesh, what would you call this? Well, okay. So we have a characteristic finding of sort of pigment changes in a circular pattern around the fovea. Some might call this a bullseye maculopathy. Huh, a bullseye ma- If you guess that, listener, then you get another eyes for ears point that you can redeem at the end of the episode. So, Avesh, can you give us a little differential for what, uh, what do you consider when you see a patient with bullseye maculopathy? Sure. So there's a bunch of things depending on, first of all, what age the patient presents at uh, regarding what we think about for bullseye maculopathy. If you're younger, we kind of think about some of the genetic disorders, perhaps like mm-hmm. Stargardt disease or cone or cone rod dystrophy. In addition, as you keep getting older, you, you know, think about benign concentric macular dystrophy, uh, macular telangiectasia pops into mind. The other thing that we really don't want to miss um, and will really make a change in patient's management is hydroxychloroquine toxicity or plaquenil toxicity. Huh. So, you know, what was done next for the patient? Did you go back and get history about any of these uh, different things in differential? Yeah. So it looks like, you know, before 20 years ago, the patient was completely fine. She had normal eye exams. So we kind of ruled out some of the some of the things that show up when you're younger. And then started talking to her a bit more about her medical history, then she finally revealed to us that she had a history of lupus, and she and she was on plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine for about 11 years. Oh, so before we get too much into the dosing and duration, now we are going to pivot from a case presentation, and let's talk about this very high-yield topic, hydroxychloroquine, and its toxicity for the eye, which is not only an important thing for retina specialists to know, but or, you know, even just for the boards, but this is a common consult that comprehensive ophthalmologists will see very frequently. So I think this is a, I thought this was a super high yield topic that Anfesh did a great review on. So what is hydroxychloroquine generally used for? So hydroxychloroquine has a bunch of different uses, primarily in the fields of rheumatology and dermatology. Many patients are treated with hydroxychloroquine if they've had malaria, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, and more recently, Things have popped up about maybe possibly treating COVID-19, but we're not going to get into that in here today. Yeah, yeah, let's not recommend or get too much into that, uh, that kettle worms. Okay, so broadly, what are some of the ocular side effects of hydroxychloroquine use, otherwise known as plaquenil? Yeah, so starting in the anterior segment, one of the most, I guess, striking findings is uh, patients on long-term hydroxychloroquine, you can identify corneal verticillata. Yeah, which uh, if... Listeners listened to our last episode. We actually just recently reviewed corneal vitricillata um, in our metabolic and drug-induced cataract episode. So you can go ahead and take a listen there to get our fun mnemonic on how to remember the causes of corneal vitricillata. But we won't redouble that effort here. If you haven't listened to the episode, just know that corneal vitricillata is an epithelial or subepithelial whirl-like pattern. That's very subtle. And it has no visual consequence but is a signal that, you know, someone has one of these seven causes of, of verticillata. But what else can plaquenil do to the eye? Yeah, moving a little bit further back, there are some issues with ciliary body changes, but those are really rare, and so we're not going to talk about that here. Mm-hmm. The most important thing that we, you know, as ophthalmologists, any type of ophthalmologist should be looking for is bullseye maculopathy, and we'll kind of discuss that more here today. Yeah, so what's the pathophysiology of hydroxychloroquine causing this bullseye maculopathy? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's a kind of a long cascade of things that happen and eventually cause cellular damage. So basically what happens is 
hydroxychloroquine, the molecule, binds to melanin in the RPE. It accumulates over time, which is why this is a more chronic process. Eventually, it inhibits the RPE's activity, the RPE's lysosome activity, which reduces phagocytosis of the photoreceptor outer segments, eventually leading to their accumulation. And after that, the RPE sort of gives up and degenerates, and all these damaged cells migrate into the outer retinal layers. And here you can see on OCT and other, other findings that the you know, outer nuclear layer sort of gets thinner and thinner as you go on, and eventually leads to irre irreversible photoreceptor loss and RPE atrophy. So it sounds like the hydroxychloroquine accumulates in the RPE, because that's where there happens to be melanin. Then, and by the way, that's probably also why that happens in the, uh, why patients get verticillata, because there's also melanin in your limbal stem cells in the cornea. Just as, as a side note, that builds up and reduces one of those five functions of the RPE, which is to eat the photoreceptor outer segments. Those outer segments are toxic and then eventually destroy the RPE in turn, which allows them to migrate into the outer retina and then leads to this, to this maculopathy. Does that sound... Is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, it sounds right. Okay, so we talk about this a lot, and I feel like like in internal medicine, it's it's kind of a big bugaboo and a fear about using hydroxychloroquine. But how often does it actually happen? Does this maculopathy happen with hydroxychloroquine use? Yeah, so overall, studies from about you know, 15, 20 years ago have shown that hydroxychloroquine toxicity for the general population taking it is about 038 to 0.68%. 0.38. That's no, right. It's really low. That's really low. Yeah. However, what's really important about this is the amount of time that a patient is actually on this medication. And that's really one of the bigger risk factors for progressing to plaquenil toxicity. And just to put some numbers out there, at about five years taking plaquenil consistently, there's about a 1% risk of developing toxicity. At about 10 years, there's about 2% chance. And what's really striking is about 20 years there's almost a 20% chance of getting plaquenil toxicity for taking it for that long. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I remember there's something about the AO and knowing not only the duration, but the dose relative to weight is important in calculating the risk for a patient. What are those guidelines now? Exactly. So kind of the two biggest risk factors we talked about duration is how long the person's on therapy. And the second one is how much they're taking on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's been some changes as to how to calculate this, but the most updated guidelines include a higher risk of toxicity if you're taking more than five milligrams per kilogram of real weight. And that's, you know, beyond that, you'll get toxicity. Mm, okay. What about, is there anything about uh, some, something about ideal body weight? Is that something we have to take into account? Yeah. So in the past, toxicity was calculated based on ideal body weight of greater than 6.5 milligrams per kilogram. But using the ideal weight really skewed population toxicity because people who are thinner would be prescribed more than they should be taking. And so mm -hmm. a few years ago, the AAO changed the guideline from using ideal body weight to real body weight, and that kind of stabilized the dosage levels across the population. Okay. So as a Dom Retina fellow, you only have to remember five milligrams per kilogram. That's right. That's a pretty uh, easy number to remember. I, I love it. I love it. What other factors might increase a patient's risk for hydroxychloroquine toxicity? Like, what else should I ask them about their medical history? Yeah, so hydroxychloroquine is renally cleared. So basically, anybody with kidney disease could be at higher risk for toxicity. In addition, people who are taking tamoxifen could possibly exacerbate their toxicity levels. 
Right. And, you know, this is probably deserving of its own episode later, but remember, tamoxifen can also cause its own maculopathy or even foveopathy. So, you know, that probably has some uh, synergistic effect there. Okay. So these are important things to ask the patient before examining them to help assess what their risk is for maculopathy. But I remember when I was a resident, we'd often get asked to examine patients to assess for plaquenil toxicity when they were like just started in the hospital. So what's the recommended screening schedule for plaquenil toxicity? Yeah. So for screening, there's actually, it's a pretty well-defined methodology. Everyone who starts plaquenil therapy should ideally be screened either before they start it or at the maximum within six to 12 months of starting the medication. Mm -hmm. And this is to establish a baseline so that we can kind of identify any other eye findings that may confound the eventual picture of toxicity if it ever occurs. Like macular degeneration or something like that? Exactly. Okay. Okay. And then after that initial screen, when do you see them again? So this is where we kind of stratify based on people's risk levels. So as we talked about the, the, the risk factors before, if you're in that higher risk category, so if you're taking a larger dose than normal, or if you have kidney disease, or if you're taking tamoxifen, then the recommendation is to have you come back as a patient every single year. So initially, prior to starting the medication, and then every year after that. However, if you are low risk or don't have any of those other risk factors that we talked about, then you can start going back to the ophthalmologist about five years later. So before you start taking the medication, and then five years later, and then after that, it'll be annual. Got it, got it. So when you see them at these, you know, all these visits, what are you looking for? What are you testing for? Is it just looking, can I just put my uh, 20 diopter lens and look for that bullseye deposit? Well, Ben, as a retina fellow, I'm sure that's what you love to do. I love it. However, (laughs) send them out. (laughs) However, findings on a fundus exam actually appear really late in the process of toxicity. So really, that's not a great screening tool. Oh, okay. So what do I need to do? Sure. So there's a couple of other objective things that we can look for. One is as an OCT, and you can kind of identify any areas of thinning. But again, this is form and doesn't really tell us about function as well. So the other, the other test that we could do is a visual field test. So classically, uh, 10-2 visual field is, Humphrey visual field is used. And specifically, we'll talk about the race differential here. Oh, yeah. So what do, why do we care about race with visual field testing? Yeah. So classically, in non-Asian patients, pigment deposits really occur closer to the fovea. And so because of this, a 10-2 is probably sufficient to identify any sort of uh, ring-like changes in the visual field. But in Asian populations, I guess empirically, they've identified that the deposits in the macula really occur a bit further out. Hmm. So a 24-2 or sometimes even a 30-2 Humphrey visual field is used to screen these patients. Interesting. Interesting. So you're saying I have to order visual fields in the retina clinic? Yeah, unfortunately. Okay. And interpret them. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay, let's go back to something I'm more familiar with, OCT. You know, I kind of talked a little bit about these signs when we were talking about the case from the beginning of the episode, but what signs are you looking for on OCT with with these patients? So as we kind of talked about the pathophysiology, the hydroxychloroquine kind of settles in the outer part of the retina uh, and the RPE. So you kind of have to look for outer retinal tissue loss in like the outer nuclear layer and the outer plexiform layer. And you look for thinning in these areas, which can, which can clue you into toxicity. Mm-hmm. Other things that you can look for are ellipsoid zone disruption. And one other thing that may come up on board exams or whatever called the flying saucer sign. What the, the what? 
This may be hard for your listeners to uh, visualize, but basically if you think about the center or the foveal area that's kind of really unaffected by the deposits here, you can see a nice thick ONL in that area, but then peripheral to that, you see the ONL kind of thinning. And this, if you have, you know, take a look at a picture of a, of a flying saucer, the center part of the flying saucer is nice and thick. And then and if you look around the periphery of it, it gets thinner and thinner. So this is kind of what whoever was smart enough to figure this out, call it a flying saucer sign. And for the listener, if you Google flying saucer sign, the first picture that pops up is uh, a very nice illustration of that. So again, apologies for the audio format, but uh, uh, thanks for, for sharing that on this. So if I see abnormalities in either of these, like, you know, like we were saying, the OCT findings are pretty subtle. You have to pay, you know, know what you're looking for and pay close attention to that outer retinal tissue loss. And, you know, going back to our patient, you know, we looked at their their visual field and they did have what might have been a very subtle kind of ring-like visual field change, not affecting the fovea, but around the fovea. But given that these are pretty subtle findings and the decision to take them off Plaquenil is pretty major, what other tests can one do besides those standard screening tools to help figure out if they truly have Plaquenil toxicity? So there's, there's a bunch of other things that we can do uh, available in our arsenal. Um, the next step that one could do if one of those two, you know, visual field or OCT are abnormal, is get a fundus autofluorescence. Now, what do you think this could show, Ben? Uh, boy. So to remind uh, listeners who, who haven't listened to our episode covering autofluorescence, autofluorescence essentially detects junk. So we say it picks up lipofusion, but if you look up the structure of lipofusion, there's no one... You know, it's basically a whole class of um, of autofluorescing molecules, and as a very, very general rule, trash autofluoresces. So, because you told me that in this disease the RP does not eat up the outer segments, I does not eat up the trash as well. I'd expect that early on they would have hyper autofluorescence, that you'd see a ring of brightness, a ring of junk around the fovea. Something like, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So in the early parts of the toxicity, you really have all this, as you said, junk build up and that kind of autofluoresces more. So you, in the early stages of toxicity on fundus autofluorescence, you'll see that ring of tissue sort of hyper autofluoresce because it kind of captures all that non-phagocytosed outer segments. So what about uh, later on? Yeah, later on, well, we talked about the fact that the RPE sort of degenerates and the ISOS junction sort of degenerates and basically the tissue is essentially dead. So there's no junk that can accumulate. So later on in the disease process, you'll get hypoautofluorescence. Right. To remind the listeners, the RP constantly has like kind of a baseline level of junk it produces and eats and, and gets rid of. So at an autofluorescence image, you should always have kind of a background level of autofluorescence. So because the tissue is destroyed here, that signal is absent. Okay, so that sounds like it's something that's helpful that's beyond, you know, just a... Um, you know, just standard fundus photography. Is there any other test that is could be helpful if you're trying to figure out if someone truly has toxicity? Yeah, there's one more test that is a bit more involved that could be helpful to identify definitive or specific hydroxychloroquine toxicity, and this is a multifocal ERG. ERG is deserving of probably its own series of episodes, but what are you looking for on the ERG to help suggest if there's any toxicity? Yeah, so a multifocal ERG can test different areas of the macula, and here you look for a subtle depression in amplitude just in the paracentral region. So the fovea is generally spared, so signals there are going to be pretty normal, but just para to that, or just around the fovea, you may see some signal depression um, in the amplitude, and that's what you can look for. Hmm. So what about, uh, you know, there's 
two types, general, broadly speaking, two types of ERG, multifocal and full field. Why not? Can you just do a full field ERG? So a full field ERG won't be useful in this setting because it's really not sensitive enough to identify specific uh, macular abnormalities. Mm, I see. I see. Okay. Now, I remember that when you initially presented this, you presented it in FA conference. So is there a utility to FA for diagnosing this? No, not really. An FA, as much as I know you love talking about FA. I love FAs. An FA really only shows problems really late in the disease process. So as a screening tool, it's not really that useful. Well, that makes that makes this fellow sad. Okay, well, what about other things like, what about just sending them home with an Amsler grid? Then I don't have to see them every year. How does that work? So as you know, Amsler grids are used for many different types of macular pathology. So it's not really specific to plaquenil toxicity. So unfortunately, it's not that great. Plus, the interpretation is quite subjective. Patients may see that may think that they see something or not see something and it may actually not be what you're looking for. Hmm. What about color testing? If you're affecting photoreceptors, perhaps color will be changed? Yeah, again, not really sensitive or specific, so sorry. Okay. Okay. So if I can summarize the imaging because this is fairly high yield for the boards and such, you start with a visual field in an OCT, and then if you see abnormalities in those, then you might consider a fundus autofluorescence or a multifocal ERG. And then the other tests that one could do aren't really quite as helpful to look specifically for this process. Does that sound about right? Exactly. Okay. So, by the way, you know, Avish arranged for these tests to be done for this patient. And, you know, these were all consistent with that paracentral problem with the outer retinal layers, which was consistent with plaquenil toxicity. So what does one do now that you know that they have plaquenil toxicity? Well, from the ophthalmologist's point of view... The eye is getting damaged, so the solution would be to stop the thing that's damaging the eye. So in this case, and in really any case with plaquenil toxicity, the recommendation would be to stop the drug. Mm. So when you stop it, do these changes reverse? Well, so we talked about a couple of things. The corneal verticillata do reverse because Mm. as the drug washes out, then the cornea becomes normal again. Unfortunately, however, once the toxicity reaches the macula and the outer parts uh, of the retina, and those tissues have essentially died, there's no really bringing them back. Oh, geez. Well, I mean, can damage progress after you stop the medication? Yeah, so the half-life of Plaquenil is actually pretty long, and the drug really doesn't wash out for about a few months. Mm. So there's two sides to this coin. One is if you stop the drug, it's not necessarily urgent for that patient to go and see their rheumatologist or dermatologist or whoever's prescribing the medication, so they can go follow up at their next appointment. But two it's possible that this maculopathy can continue to progress for a, for a little while longer while the drug washes out. I see, I see. So I guess that highlights the importance of catching this as early as possible because it's not like when you stop it, everything about the damage with it stops, huh? Yeah, that's right. Okay. What was eventually done for your patient? So for our patient, we had noticed that as we calculated the doses, she was taking about 400 milligrams of Plaquenil daily for more than 10 years. And this kind of amounted to when we calculated her real weight and things like that. She was taking about 5.3 milligrams per kilogram of real weight of the medication for more than 10 years. And she also had a previous history of taking medication tamoxifen. So all these things together put her at higher risk for the toxicity. And eventually, 11 years later, we had identified that this drug actually was toxic to her and we had advised her to stop it. Well, I think that is was a great summary of bullseye maculopathy and plaquenil toxicity. 
you also had a fun fact at the end of your presentation that I think is, this is probably the, if you're going to remember anything from this episode, this is what you should remember. Why is a bullseye called a bullseye? That's a great question, Ben. It really doesn't seem too intuitive because if you look at the eye of a bull, it doesn't really look like a bullseye that you see at a, at a dartboard or anything like that. But in fact, according to some sources, it seems like English archers used to try to shoot a bull's eye, literally in the eye of a bull, in order to practice their targets uh, as well as show off their skills. So that's oh probably God. where it comes from. Yeah, talk about globe trauma. Um, okay, well, thank you so much for taking your lovely Saturday morning to help teach all of us about hydroxychloroquine toxicity. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Eyes 4 Ears with number four on Twitter. And if you'd like to support the podcast, then a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found our podcast is super helpful. Yeah, otherwise, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Thanks, man. Bye.